The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Well, I'm joined now by a familiar voice to you all, but in a conversation that might surprise you, we're not talking about movies, we're not talking about booze, be, we are talking about Ukraine, because Sean Moncrief is just back from a trip to Kiev, having immersed himself in the citizens' lives ahead of the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion this Friday. While many of its citizens have fled their homes in search of safer places within Ukraine, others have sought refuge outside her borders, uh, including, of course, in Ireland. But what about those who remain. What is it like living in a war zone? Sean, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Pat. Thanks for having me on. Uh, first of all, did you feel any trepidation about going there in the first place? Uh, not particularly, because the the, the um, uh, from we did obviously we did a lot of research in advance as to how safe or not it might be. There are when we in the period of time we were there, we had six or seven air alerts, which are quite routine now. We had just walked out of the station when we arrived when there was an air alert. Most Kievans just kind of shrug and say, well, we'll wait for a few minutes and see as this because they've it, it's become normalized in, yeah. in, in their day to day life. So they would they would wait for they, most Kievans would know I'm 10 minutes away from a shelter. <clears throat> so they would kind of calculate that in terms of how long it goes on for. But you'd get a, a, an alert and maybe half an hour later, the alert would say it's safe to go out now. OK, so they have detected uh, somewhere in the skies something incoming, but where it's going if to it, be yeah, determined, a plane could take. Like I mean, the airspace. They want to keep their airspace completely clear. But if if a plane takes off anywhere just outside the border, the alarm will go off. Now, what one <clears throat> one of the days that we were there, there was a rocket. They shot it down. Another day, it was a balloon. Uh, which, which kind of implied that the Russians were taking a leaf out of the Chinese book by uh, just to mess with them a little bit. Now, uh, the life in the city itself. Uh, how quote unquote normal is it? It, it, if you squint it, it's completely normal. The, it, it's and and uh, I must admit, I knew little or nothing about Kiev before I arrived there. Uh, it's a large city. It's a cosmopolitan European city. Everything is bilingual. It's very busy, uh, and uh, you know, I go back in a heartbeat. Um, actually, just for a holiday, the the restaurants are gorgeous. There's an old town down by the river, and then that's surrounded by a kind of more high rise. Feels could feel a bit like like you're in downtown Manhattan kind of a a feeling to it. Uh, And so people are kind of getting on with their lives. Now you can drive around and you go around a corner and there's a demolished building. And, uh, you know, they in in the centre of Kiev, they're they're not that frequent. It's really when you go to the outskirts uh, that you see the... the I mean, the Russians did come close to Kiev at the very beginning uh, and then uh, hightailed it out of there. So presumably the relics of that time are still visible. Oh, yeah. The thing is, and again, that like a lot of the reporting that, you know, the people talk about Bucha and Irpin and uh, Borodanka, um, these are effectively suburbs of Kiev. This is like if an invading army got as far as Dunleary yeah. and flattened the place. And for, for a six weeks period, uh, people were just stuck in their homes. They couldn't get medicine. They couldn't get food. They couldn't get water. They had no power. Um, th- there is a, a, a kind of a monument, I suppose, on the head of Borodjanka, which is called the Cemetery of, of Cars. And there's 50 or 60 burnt out cars all mounted on top of each other because if people tried to flee Borodjanka in a car, it got shot by a tank. So every one of those cars, somebody died in them or multiple people died in them. Now, uh, the recall of the uh, citizens of the Russians arriving in their towns, um, 
the Russians were quite surprised by what they found. It the, appears. Well, the Russian and and again, and the, I suppose this goes into a wider question about investigating war crimes and also how well trained these soldiers were. But these soldiers clearly had been told they were a liberating army that would be welcomed, which they were not, of course. Uh, and we were told many times by people that that the Russians would try to kick in their front door but were unable to do so and were surprised by how sturdy Ukrainian front doors are. (laughs) And when they got inside, there was a lot of looting because you have a microwave, you have a TV. We were told you were all peasants with no money. Uh, And which, which from the stories we were told, seemed to infuriate them even further uh, so that you had cars getting shot. People, if people went out in the street, they'd be shot. There were, there were bodies piling up outside doors. To the extent, and the Russians wouldn't uh, wouldn't allow funerals to take place. To the extent that dogs were eating bodies, while people were looking out their front windows. My goodness! Now, um, Kiev is. Uh blessed with an underground system. Yes. So yes. if there should be incoming ar- uh, ordinance, uh, they can flee uh, to the underground, which we, of course, don't have in this city where we ever to be attacked. So w- how did that all work? The, well, it, the, interestingly enough, uh, and it's, it's, it's a, a, a Soviet hangover to the extent that uh, Kiev has the deepest underground system in the world. And Ashley Moore, my producer, became fascinated with timing how long it took to go down. And it takes four minutes on two escalators to get down that far. And it has these doors that are like 10 centimetres thick that can slide shut. And and during the first three or four days, at least, something like 60,000 people sheltered in uh, in, in those underground uh, metro stations. And uh, we, we did talk to uh, Jennifer Dushinga. Now, she's uh, director of the Klasva metro station, and she told us how it worked there. On the top here, uh, we had one coffee shop uh, and they had some products from that products uh, that they have they prepared some at least some food for us that's how we stay uh, alive I can 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 eat around 700 800 people uh, they've been here with us how did you organize where to put everyone where to sleep were they sleeping on the platforms where the trains are uh, people uh, stayed wherever they could find to uh, free space. Of course, it was a platform between trains. Trains were also standing, uh, and uh, we placed uh, disabled people, older people, and uh, uh, families with child in the trains because it was a little, little bit uh, com- more comfortable. The, the most smallest uh, human who which we had it's three months was and was it warm down here uh, it was very cold around 10 degrees around 10 degrees not uh, comfortable but at least safe given the depth of the metro now Sean uh, people were very happy to share their war stories with mm. you tell me about Topol uh, Topol and, uh, and interesting thing about Topol but it was something we encountered again and again you'd meet these people who had done heroic things or were you know had been engaging kind of risky be- well, what we'd call risk behavior but it was a it, there was an invasion going on at the time nobody ever looked like the way you expected them to look this guy topol was when we went to meet him in his apartment he was wearing a pair of shorts a slipknot t-shirt he had a pigtail he looked like the sort of fella who'd spend most of his day paying 
PlayStation 4 uh, <laughs> rather than he was any sort of a war hero. But he's from Irpin and he is actually also a member of the Territorial Defence. Now, it's worth pointing out that when you go to Kiev and you say when the war started, as far as they're concerned, the war started in 2014 yeah, when Crimea, Crimea was, uh, was invaded. This was just the next step in that. This was the total invasion. Now, he was in Urpin with his father, but uh, his father is diabetic. And again, this was something we encountered many times. One, one huge problem was they're getting medicines because they were completely cut off uh, from the rest of Kiev. So he knew he had to get his, his dad out of Urpin. Uh, his dad couldn't walk. Uh, he had a, uh, they had a couple of pets. Uh, Ukrainians love their pets. So he put the father in a wheelbarrow uh, with the two pets in his lap and they went cross country. So I decided that the most uh, safe way will be near forest through field. I local guy, I knew all uh, ways here, so uh, all my life I know that uh, near forest, uh, through field, there is a road there, like like forest field road, mm. small. Uh, and I'm going with my father, my father uh, disabled, he cannot walk uh, on this uh, wheelbarrow. And then suddenly I see that on the half of the road, there is no this road anymore. And uh, we uh, we passed this road more than three hours. Um, and, um, and then uh, soldiers uh, meet us uh, and put us in car and evacuate us uh, to the Kiev. How they know that they need to meet me. There was no connection because Russians crashed connection and yeah. uh, we cannot contact uh, with anyone. But sometimes if you go uh, very high in Irpin, you could take some small amount of connection and just receive message and just send message. And this is how I told a friend to meet me uh, in that Romanivka, which is uh, near Irpin, when I will be evacuated with my father. No, um, not a final happy ending, though. No, the father, uh, uh, sadly, the the father did die uh, some weeks later. Uh, But he, the the son continued doing this. He realised there was obviously a need for this. So himself, uh, another chap, he owned a Kia Picanto. So this isn't military-grade vehicles or anything. But they would stuff the car with medical supplies, with food, with anything they get their hands on. And they would go in and out to Irpin, obviously avoiding uh, Russian checkpoints. Mm-hmm. And they did that for six weeks, several times a day. Now, you mentioned the Ukrainians love uh, their animals mm. and the zoo survives. Yeah, and it was, it was, I suppose it was kind of one of those things where we thought, well, is there a zoo there? And, and, you know, because they had to deal with all the things everybody else had to deal with, uh, such as uh, power cuts and, uh, you know, being cut off from the rest of the world. So we did go down uh, for, a, for a visit there. Now, one of the workers at the zoo got very excited when he arrived because he was a huge fan of you too and wanted to know, did I know Bono? Which uh, you do. Uh, which I do. I lied <laughs> and said I did. Uh, so anyway, this is the, the zoo director, uh, Kirill Tranton. Oh, wow. Uh, at the first day when uh, invasion happened, 50 employees come to zoo with their animals, with their family, and more than months we were living all together here for around 50 days. People were actually living in the zoo. 
Yes, all employees, like more than 50 employees. We were living here all together in bomb shelters. So we make fire on, uh, on the fresh air and we cooked uh, food uh, at that fires. We had uh, two teams. One team uh, was going around the city collecting food products for animals and the other team uh, was collecting resources for actually human team. We learned how to cook bread, uh, to bake bread. Uh, we learned how to uh, plant salads. So growing salads and baking bread um, kept yeah. the, the humans in the zoo uh, going while people went out scavenging, I suppose, for yeah. food for the animals. Um, I was wondering, Sean, about the, the whole history with Russia, you know, part of Russia under Stalin and all the rest of it. How Ukrainians view Russia if you like, Imperial Russia versus the Russian people. That's That was, I suppose, a slightly disturbing thing. Uh, at this distance, we might see a bit more nuance in that. We, you know, we know that there are Russians who oppose the war. We know there are Russians who have been arrested for that or had to flee the country uh, from that. And I suppose maybe it's understandable that, that and again, this is a, an attitude we encountered many, many times as to what their attitude was towards Russia. And, you know, many Ukrainians feel that their culture, their language, that Russia has been trying to extinguish this for centuries, not just since uh, 2014. So we did go to talk to a, this is a, he's a history professor in uh, uh, Kiev University. His name, Vladen Morev. And that was one of the questions I asked him. Mm, it's Russian people. Absolutely majority of Russian people do not perceive Ukraine like an independent country. They don't uh, believe that it's independent country. Also, they don't like and don't working according to the international law. For the last 20 years between Russia and Ukraine, we have uh, more than 400 documents about our independence, about uh, our identity, so on, so on. But Russians don't respect international norm and don't take in, into account these norms. They violated them. And we know that sometimes Europe, by mistake, they name that regime is uh, responsible. But regime, it is like it is because of people who make this regime, who don't respect international law and they imperialist, they don't see Ukraine like an independent country. Now, they too had their famine, as we all yes, often indeed, recall yeah. our famine yeah. of the 1840s. They had their famine in the last century under Stalin. Yeah, and uh, uh, well, it's... Uh, up to about 10, 12 million people died. And it was essentially because there was grain quotas imposed that were completely unrealistic. So there was no, literally no food for Ukrainians. Even though uh, it was eat. the breadbasket of the region. Exactly, yeah. Uh, the Army. Plus also there was a period in their history uh, under Stalin where, again, there, were, uh, the, there was an intense Russification where they discouraged people from speaking Ukrainian. So they've had those, within living memory, they've had those kinds of experiences. Now, a lot of war crimes have been uh, levelled at Russia's door. 
how are they investigating those and will anyone ever be brought to justice? Well, that's, uh, yeah, that is, that is the, the se- second question is a very uh, uh, germane one. We did talk to uh, a chap called Roman Koval and this is an NGO called Truth Hounds. Uh, now, they do coordinate with the, with the official bodies as well. Uh, but he, he's told us about uh, instances of torture that he's come across. Our last field mission was to Kherson region, to the occupied areas of Kherson region, not to the city itself. We identified a huge torture chamber in uh, Veliko Alexandrivka. It's a it's a small it's a small town in Kherson region, and 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 the basement of a building uh, there were torture chamber uh, close to school number one, where Russian troops were dislocated and. Actually, in this torture chamber, people were tortured with electricity. The Russian soldiers beat them, and we identified more than 20 victims of, of, of such actions. Nobody knows where they are right now, so they probably were killed, and their bodies uh, still cannot be found. Or, for example, they were deported to some occupied areas or to Russia itself. And that's extraordinary. Actually, uh, if they survived at all, they Mm. might be kidnapped to Russia and what, indoctrinated, imprisoned, sent to the front line to fight for Russia? Who who knows? And the smallest thing could get you tortured. Oh, yeah. If you had a tattoo, uh, um, being a male puts you in in jeopardy in the first instance. But if you have any sort of tattoo that might mention Ukraine then that was taken to mean you were, you were some sort of partisan, so you'd probably just get shot mm-hmm. immediately. Uh, finally, I've seen some of the pictures uh, that, that uh, you took while you were there. Um, do you think it was a life-changing experience for you? Do, you? do you have, you know, a change of mind about any of your thoughts on Ukraine up to this? In, 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 in one particular, and interestingly enough, a very striking thing happened on the way out. Uh, that it takes a long time to get because you can't fly into Kiev, obviously, and so you, you have to take a train. And 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 we came back from Chivov Airport in Poland, which is very close uh, to the border with Ukraine. That's surrounded in anti-aircraft batteries. That's a country in the European Union. So that really brought it home to me that God knows what could happen uh, uh, if this mm. goes on. Yeah, and the question of Putin, do they think he's an evil genius or uh, a, a, a kind of a, a fool? Uh, no, well, I think they, they certainly think he's evil and, uh, and certain, they, they see it as an existential threat. They see that the only way out of this is that uh, they, they at least continue to beat Russia to a standstill where eventually he's taken down. All right. Uh, well, Sean, you'll be continuing uh, your coverage of your experiences in uh, Ukraine this afternoon. Yeah? Yes, indeed. Yeah. All right. Sean Moncrief, uh, thank you very much for uh, joining us. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9 a.m. on News Talk.